Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, I've got three ideas that I'd like to consider, and then at the end, we'll rank them. We'll decide which idea is maybe the most important that we as Americans should be thinking about. I want to talk about CRISPR technology. I want to talk about how Russia will be impacted by global warming. And then I want to talk about the idea of a carbon coin. But to start out, I want to talk about CRISPR. And this is that technology that basically allows us to gene edit DNA and to totally potentially fight off diseases or to change how the human body works works. And so here's the best paragraph that I read from a New Yorker article that you sent me. In the past decade or so, genetic engineering has undergone its own transformation, thanks to CRISPR, shorthand for a suite of techniques mostly borrowed from bacteria that make it vastly easier for biohackers and researchers to manipulate DNA. CRISPR allows its users to snip a stretch of DNA and then either disable the affected sequence or replace it with a new one. The possibilities that follow are pretty much endless. Jennifer Donda, a professor of the University of California, Berkeley, and one of the developers of CRISPR has put it like this. We now have a way to rewrite the very molecules of life any way we wish. With CRISPR, biologists have already created, among many, many other living things, ants that can't smell, beagles that put on superhero-like brawn, pigs that resist swine fever, macaws that suffer from sleep disorders, coffee beans that contain no caffeine, salmon that don't lay eggs, mice that don't get fat, and bacteria whose genes contain, in code, famous series of photographs showing a horse in motion. Two years ago, a Chinese scientist announced that he had produced the world's first CRISPR-edited humans, twin baby girls. The girls' genes had been tweaked to confer resistance to HIV, though whether this was actually the case remains unclear. Following his announcement, he was fired from his academic post in Shenzhen and sentenced to three years in prison. And Don, CRISPR has been around for a little bit. You and I have mentioned it occasionally on our podcast. What did you think of this article? This was the one that I thought was most interesting. I am very, very intrigued in science. I never took math class seriously as a child. And so as a result, I wasn't able to pursue science. It wasn't even an option at any level. But I, I really am intrigued by it. The CRISPR idea is, of course, editing genes that are heritable. So the genes that are edited of the individual can pass it on to their children and so forth. And specifically, this article was about the cane toad. And years and years ago, 100 and some years ago, in Australia, there was an infestation of this bug that was eating the cotton, I believe. And then they brought in cane toads to eat this bug. Well, the cane toads didn't eat the bug, but they prospered throughout Australia where there is no toads that are natural there. And there's so many cane toads. And they're everywhere. And they're a huge problem in Australia. And then they're poisonous. So the animals that eat it die or get sick. So you can't, they're almost impossible to get rid of. They're everywhere. And the proposition of the article was change the genetics of a cane toad. So it only has male children. And if you release 50 toads and they only have male children and they, and they go out and about the population, then quickly you're only passing on the male gene and you run out of females and quickly you have no toads. They talked about bringing this to islands in the Pacific where mice and rats that were brought by Europeans have destroyed birds. And I was just so interested because the original problem with the cane toad was brought in to fix something. But here's technology again going to fix something. I don't know whether we should pull the trigger. It's just so interesting. Yes. What was really interesting about this article was they took 
the writer into the lab where they're doing some of this high-tech CRISPR research. I think they were working mostly on mice, it seemed like, and the lab was in Australia, but the writer describes the amount of security that they have to pass just to get in to the actual lab where they're doing the work. There's like double walls and you've got to have all these various security checkpoints. Clearly, everybody at least involved in that institution seems to think this is a big deal. It seems to think that there's the sort of science experiments that if they got out could dramatically alter an environment. On paper, it's like, yes, we've got to get rid of these evil toads. But there is that question of what's the unintended consequence? Clearly, 100 years ago, nobody really thought about if these toads might cause a problem. Clearly, they have. We've seen this sort of thing happening all throughout the world where you have these animals that are non-native that get introduced to an environment, and then all of a sudden, they start to flourish. The native animals that have always been there start to see a decline. It's just sort of one of those moments of what do you do? What do you do with humans when you have this sort of life-altering technology? And you could solve the problem in Australia, but what if that cane toad got out and got back to Indonesia, where I believe the cane toads are from? Then that could end up ending the cane toad in every way, in Indonesia. And I guess we could bring it back later by further altering the genetics, but it's just crazy. And the same thing with mice and rats, which are causing such problems in these Pacific Islands. What if that rat or mouse got loose and went back to some other land like the continental United States and got loose? And then all of a sudden we could end up with no mice and no rats because they'll only have male children. And they are working to make it so it's one or two generations long this gene carries on, but that's not proven. It's just incredible the power we have due to science to change the biosphere. And in the year, forever, we've been changing it for the negative by bringing invasive species to places they shouldn't be. But this is one where we can change it to the positive, or so we think. We think. I just keep wondering, well, maybe there's some insect or bug in Australia that is being beaten back because of the cane toads, which they describe as just this gross animal that eats everything. And, yeah. um, you know, if you're a cane toad, I, I guess you'd probably be offended by this article and how you're described. But there's a really interesting quote in, in the uh, article, too, where they, they kind of go to one of the biologists and they're like, hey, what's going on? And so I just want to read you this quote. They said, the classic thing people say with molecular biology is, are you playing God? Well, no. We are using our understanding of biological processes to see if we can benefit a system that is in trauma. That quote to me is so PR. It's so advertising. It's almost somebody who's trying to get you to forget about the sort of power that you really now have. Wouldn't you agree? No, I totally disagree. I mean, are we playing God when we give diabetics insulin and other drugs to treat their affliction? Are we playing God when we pull brain tumors out of people's minds so that they can go about and live a good life? There's a slippery slope here. I don't really buy the playing God thing. I think anybody that truly believes in God would probably say that God, God is all-powerful and will make things happen whatever way God wishes. But I disagree with that idea. I do think that the CRISPR technology is just so new, it's kind of frightening to think about its possibilities. But one thing I was thinking about while I was reading this is that human history is full of species exchanging and, and getting intermixed with each other. You think about the Colombian exchange when the Europeans came over to the Western hemisphere and all of the crops that started getting planted all over the place. We didn't have horses until the Europeans showed up and, and brought them here, right? I was thinking about even 10, 20,000 years ago when our Paleolithic ancestors started marching across the earth, 
most likely they killed off a lot of the megafauna that were living there. They brought species with them that started growing in certain places that had never been there. So it's not like this is totally different. I guess in the old days, though, the species just kind of stopped and they weren't able to be altered. And maybe that's the big difference. Yeah. And like you said, there are benefits. I mean, tomatoes and chocolate are part of the Colombian exchange that went back to Europe. They didn't exist in Europe before the uh, Americas were quote unquote found. However, mostly it's these native species that have truly suffered. I mean, I've read a million articles about these Chinese leaping carp that are headed for the Great Lakes. There are all sorts of bad stories. I mean, it's just exciting to think that there's a solution. And I guess I'm intrigued by the power, although I'm, and I'm intrigued by the idea that a, through CRISPR, we could prevent genetic diseases that haunt Americans and people all over the world. And there is so much possibility there. How do you strike that balance? Because you bring up a good point of all of the potential diseases and horrific things that have happened to humans that possibly CRISPR could solve. And those are clearly the benefits to continue down the road with this science. A part of me always thinks like everything I read about lately is about how we need to be more bold as a humans. I mean, our first podcast episode was about needing to build, right? Using the pandemic to start to build and rethink what America should be. You and I have talked about how this experience should help us rebuild and rethink how schools are run. If anything, you know, our hero Tyler Cowen on his blog has been hammering away at the fact that watching the vaccine rollout be so slow and clunky, why isn't the government more bold? Why aren't we approving more vaccines on an emergency basis faster? And it just sort of made me think about like, 20 years ago, remember the Y2K scare when for one year, all we heard about is how the internet's going to break. And then all of the power systems are just going to shut down. And like, literally you and I were going to be drinking water out of a kiddie pool while we held a shotgun, eating a can of beans. Right. And yet new year's came that year and nothing happened. And everybody was like, really? Like that was it. We got so worked up over that. I think about how cable news every day wants to pronounce it's the end of America because this president or this Congress is doing this. And yet everyday America kind of still seems to show up the next day. Is it possible that this CRISPR thing is just overblown too? Is it possible that like, here's some great technology, we should just start using it. Probably nothing that bad could come from it. I don't know, nothing that bad probably was said when uh, cane toads were first brought to Australia. I mean, there are tremendous effects that you can't go back from, that there are one-way changes that throw everything into disarray. And so I think it's more of those. And I'm all for it. I'm not even somebody that is truly affected that much. Imagine if you had a child that had a genetic disease that was healthy one day and then bound for an early demise the next. I would be screaming from the highest hilltop to say, let's use this technology. It's there. We should fix my child. And this is that, that opportunity. I think we should do these things. The one thing I was always thinking about is if we don't, you know that somebody else will. In that article or in the paragraph I mentioned, talked about the scientist in China who claims that he's taken HIV or at least the ability of, for people to not get HIV into these two twins. He was put in jail. We don't actually know if he did it or not, but it makes you realize that while there's a lab in Australia that's got all this security and is clearly wrestling with some really difficult questions, I'm a believer that somebody else is working in a lab that probably has a really bad lock on it. And they're trying to do all sorts of unimaginable things, not asking these sorts of hard questions. And therefore, 
if we don't pursue this, does that mean that you sort of cede the future to another nation or another group of scientists that have already decided to start working on it? Well, that's assuming everybody is at equal footing. And I guess that's kind of the way science works is they publish their results and it's replicable. And the replication is what makes the science show that it's effective. And perhaps in China, some people are doing some crazy stuff. They probably are. If their effects are incredible, yeah, that's good. But what if that gives them advantage over us? I don't know. It's a whole new battlefront. It's like how our nation is focused on tanks and ships when really we need to be focused on internet war and cybersecurity and things like that. It's just a new venue to really think about. Do you think though, like nuclear weapons, when they came out towards the end of World War II, we actually used them, right? Now, the scientists that made them, a lot of them seem to have really regretted their work on it, but we did. We dropped two bombs over Japan to end the war. Ironically, while more and more and more weapons have been developed and at even greater horrific scale that could really decimate the entire earth, they've not been used since World War II. In some ways, we developed the technology, we saw their awesome impact, and in a way, no one's used them since. And could you say that by having seen the results, humans, while they want to have them, don't actually want to use them. And maybe that was the best thing that's ever happened for us as we saw what could happen. And therefore, do you say, hey, let's edit up some uh, cane toads, let it go. And maybe that will be the moment that we can actually learn if this is a really scary technology or not. That's a tough one. Because I think if the atomic bombs had not been dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the great tragedy that it was, and I've been to Hiroshima and seen the effects and been to the A-bomb museum, as I believe you have as well, it's incredible. And I think without that having happened, then they probably would have been used in another time. And the bombs only got bigger and more powerful and probably to much greater destruction. Yeah, let's, should we deal with the cane toads and see what happens? Yeah, let's do it. It seems like we can reinstall cane toads if we want and genetically modify them. We have the power to give and take. Let's do it. There you go. We've got the power and the technology just to, to make up for our own uh, mistake, right? Isn't that always the, the first uh, fallacy that humans like to believe? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The final question just kind of on this topic is, I was thinking about ethics and science and these sorts of incredibly hard questions to deal with, right? We've seen it also with the vaccine rollout and kind of who gets to go first. And, and there still always seems to be a debate about these things. Do you think ethics especially when it comes to these large scientific and technology questions, puts too much value on the future instead of the present. I just kind of mean like, you know, here we are wrestling with this thing. And, and some people want to argue, you got to be bold. You got to do things because we don't know what the future is going to be like. And it seems like one of the few times that humans actually want to think more about the future than about the present. And as you were saying, we have people dying of horrific diseases and suffering every day. Maybe we could solve it. And yet we ask that question about what if for the future. Yeah, I think the future, when you go back to the example of the atomic bombs, the future was the next few weeks or few months. Like if we have to invade Japan on a, uh, and by taking it by force with a amphetamine landing, then not only will Americans and allied soldiers die, but Japanese civilians will. So we're just going to kill less civilians right now. And that will lead us to a better resolution. And well, right or wrong, that was the thing that happened. And the future was pretty short that they're looking at. Now we're looking at a much greater future and perhaps all for the better. And wiser people than you or I are making these decisions. But it's just so interesting that the capabilities we have. 
So while people think about CRISPR, and obviously I think this is really going to be the technology that for the next 10 years, people will be arguing about in all sorts of facets, not just with cane toads. I think we're going to see it with more instances of humans and stuff like that. It's almost like I wonder if we've been lulled because remember when they cloned Dolly the sheep like 20 years ago, and then they showed the next sheep next to it. And like, it was like, okay, like, I guess that's the same one. I don't know. They all look like sheep. Sheep have always looked the kind of the same. And I wonder if people are like, oh, cloning, it's not that big of a deal anymore. I guess we make a bunch of sheep with it. Not enough people have really made that next leap about the cloning of humans, right? Or the harvesting of organs or all of the various implications that could come from it. Do you think at all, maybe just eh, the average person is just never going to really care about this issue? I think the average person is more concerned about the Super Bowl or what's happening in uh, La Liga or wherever. But these are things that do have long range impact that are interesting to think about and perhaps very effective, especially if maybe it impacts the NFL and the Super Bowl. If we can create superhumans that are even more super than the humans we have now through CRISPR technology. Or just have more Pat Mahomes and stuff like that. Yeah, so I understand was quite a basketball player. I read an article about him today. He was uh, he was really really good. He could be in both leagues at the same time. Yes, Bo Jackson style. Well, moving from that then, and thinking about long term planning, long term thinking, there was another article that we came across about Russia and about climate change. And of course, everything we tend to read about climate change is just this huge negative, just this depressing, the future is going to be this horrible place. But yet some places seem to benefit. And so here's the best paragraph I read. For a few nations, climate change will present an unparalleled opportunity as the planet's coldest regions become more temperate. There is plenty of reason to think that those places will also receive an extraordinary influx of people displaced from the hottest parts of the world as the climate warms. Human migration historically has been driven by the pursuit of prosperity even more so than it has by environmental strife. With climate change, prosperity, habitability, haven, and economic opportunity will soon become one and the same. And no country may be better positioned to capitalize on climate change than Russia. Russia has the largest landmass by far of any northern nation. It is positioned farther north than all of its South Asian neighbors, which collectively are home to the largest global population, fending off displacement from rising seas, drought, and an overheating climate. Like Canada, Russia is rich in resources and land with room to grow. Its crop production is expected to be boosted by warming temperatures over the coming decades, even as farm yields in the United States, Europe, and India are all forecast to decrease. And whether by accident or cunning strategy or more likely some combination of the two, the steps its leaders have steadily taken, planting flags in the Arctic and propping up domestic grain production among them, have increasingly positioned Russia to regain its superpower mantle in a warmer world. And so, Don, America's old foe from the Cold War, maybe in the long run, Russia wins. What did you think about this? It's an interesting idea. And yes, Russia in the future will probably make more food. That said, food is not the massive generator of wealth. The ideas that create the wealth are the, we look at our billionaires lately. They are social media. They are technology companies. They are innovative thinkers. It's not about who makes the most grain. It's who's got the most robust economy with the quickest change and the best thinkers. And the best thinkers don't really want to be in Russia. So I guess Russia could prosper if they change and they're not Russia anymore, meaning a dictatorship with a falling birth rate and a tremendous rate of alcoholism. That's not what makes a dynamic economy. They can make all the grain in the world, but who cares? 
See, I totally disagree with you there. And here's my thinking is that you're very short term. We're once again, belittling a nation and we're not understanding the total global impact that global warming could have. And the idea that this article kind of brings up is that, look, America, India, places in Europe could have these, these old major bread baskets of the world. People that used to be the major suppliers of food, they could experience major shifts in how much food they can produce. The discussion in this thing is that Russia could become a major player in global food supply. And all of a sudden, their corn, their wheat, their soy, their grains are could what dramatically impact the market worldwide. They could become a major player. While I agree with you that it's the technology that seems to be where all the major growth and productivity is, a major building block and major just sort of basic commodity, though, is food and who controls it. Russia is going to have a lot of new fields out there. They're going to be open for production. I think it's going to make them a major power player. I think they've got to be thinking about this long term. Is America's food supply going to be secure or are we going to rely on or will emerging nations rely on Russia for its food? And what does that mean for the balance of power? Okay, so if we're going to think long run, all right, so now we're not talking short run, we're talking long run. In the long term, then we are assuming we'll use the same food production methods as we currently are. This is the point behind what you're saying, is that all things remain constant except for climate changes, and therefore we will... Russia will have this giant breadbasket. Yeah, but what if other things change in this long run? What if we're ocean farming or making, uh, growing catfish in warehouses and doing all these new different things? I mean, lobsters are moving south. I have read that. And there's an abundance of lobsters. Maybe it's just everything else changes. It's just not this one single thing. Isn't lobster the food for billionaires? I, I can't stand lobster. I enjoy lobster. And in fact, I was reading about lobster not long ago. And in Maine, it was so plentiful that there was a law in the state that you can only feed convicts lobster two days a week because they're feeding the prisoners lobster every single day because it would just, it was limitless and cheap. And people thought it was the scorn of the seas. Well, now it is rich people food, but it is uh, still delicious and moving south and we can eat more and more of it. Tell me, though, Don, that when you eat your lobster, you dunk that thing in butter. I am not much of a butter dunker. We were in Maine two years ago, and I had a lobster. It was wonderful. I am not into the big dunking of butter. As you know, uh, blood pressure is a issue in my family, unlike yours, where your low blood pressure is one of your peak attributes. So, no, I'm out on the butter. Well, hopefully CRISPR will help you with that. But I do want to go back <laughs> to your, your point, because I do think you make a good point of Here's this projection that's made, and I like what you're saying of, well, why are we just changing one variable? And I do think you make a very legitimate point that it's not like America or these other countries couldn't go out and change their own variables about the kind of technology they have, the kind of farming. But I do think this article just raises a much larger point of, here's a nation that maybe you could argue has taken a couple steps back from the world stage in terms of economic power and growth. Russia forever has kind of relied on its oil and its natural gas. And as we've been seeing with the drop in oil prices, you've seen a country kind of struggling to cover its, its budget and stuff like that. But yet here it comes now with a major new opportunity. There's a lot of land out there in Siberia that with the unfreezing of their tundra and with more areas warming up, 
there could be a major opportunity for them to sort of become a global player in food. And the article talks about how it doesn't take much for global food prices to change until you see food riots in a lot of developing nations that can't grow enough food for themselves. And it just seems like Russia could hold countries hostage for trade negotiations or for security deals in order to keep the grain going to them and stuff like that. That is a good point, but know that these nations where they're food insecure don't have tremendous amounts of resources. These are small, mostly poor nations, not small in popula- not small in population, but small in economic power. And you could leverage and say, hey, yes, food, we have food for you if you provide us X, Y, and Z, but they don't have that much to give. I mean, for the modern developed world people, what percentage of their daily or monthly budget is food? 10%, 15, 20. It's not like that's a huge amount. And if the prices rise, it'll hurt these developing nations tremendously. But the most developed and most wealthy people won't be hurt that much. Plus, we still are pretty good at making lots of food. We make soybeans, baby. People love that's those. That's true. I mean, North America, I think, you know, I think America still has a good shot at still obviously producing a lot of food, but I could just see us seeding market share to other places of the world. They said in the article that basically the optimum productive human climate is average of about 52 to 59 degrees. And they just said that Russia is going to be in that zone where they're going to see a better thing. Now, it's not just Russia. They also mentioned that Canada, Scandinavia, and Iceland also all stand to benefit from these sorts of climatic changes and stuff like that. I think it's not just a Russia thing, but it's just that Russia, of course, always being a consistent adversary of America. It makes me wonder, are we thinking enough about this stuff? We always talk about how America just loves to just fight in the short term. We seem to fight about everything. And we seem to be either making new executive orders only just to wipe them away by the next president. And do you think our military, our think tanks, our State Department is putting enough thought into global climate change and how it's going to impact everything on the earth? They talked about how you're going to have 3 billion people living out of this productive zone of of the earth. And therefore, there's a high chance you're going to see a lot of climate refugees, people who their homes are just untenable to live in and they're going to be on the move and they're going to be pushing into new nations. And Russia could be one of these places they're pushing into. I'm glad you mentioned climate refugees because that was my next question for Russia is where are the people coming from? Where are the people that are going to harvest these fields and run these farms? Russia's population is shrinking rapidly. And I don't know if anybody wants to immigrate there. Like, well, maybe people that are displaced out of small Pacific islands, Kiribati is about to be underwater. Maybe those people move to Russia and take advantage of the opportunities to farm there. Maybe not. I don't know who's going to be doing it. Now, you mentioned the legislative issues and the Biden administration certainly is focusing heavily on climate change and how that's going to affect the long run. And perhaps they do the planning and the groundwork for the next administration, whomever that is. But Climate change has become political still, and there are people that don't believe it. I think right now they're more focused on not believing in elections or believing in the QAnon theory, but climate change is still political, and I'm not sure people are willing to take it on as a real-world problem, although they should. Well, this is something I was thinking about, though, is the article makes it seem like, look, Russia is very aware of 
the long-term opportunity they might have because of climate change. They've started striking longer-term deals with China, for instance, to help finance the development of cities and the land out in Siberia, it talks about. You were just saying about how, like in our country, we're still trying to win over the nation to decide if climate change is actually an issue or not. And it made me wonder about democracy versus autocracy when it comes to like long-term planning for a nation. Do you think there's an advantage there when you're a nation that has a dictator or a small political party like China does that makes all the decisions? When it comes to long-term thinking, I'm not saying about human rights or what's better, but just in order of positioning your nation is just you're slowly chipping away. It's kind of like you're playing Monopoly. You've got like $1 left. You just keep marching around the board. Maybe your opponent looks like they're winning. And then all of a sudden you hit free parking and boom, the game has totally changed all of a sudden. And do you think there's something to be said for that sort of style of rule for the earth? Well, I do see that, all right, so if you're a dictator and your son or your daughter's going to be the next dictator, you want them to go well and you want your legacy to look good. So certainly you should make some long-range plans as opposed to America's system where every four or eight years your adversary takes over. And so you better get what you can while you can and who cares what happens in the long run. That seems to be American budgetary planning in terms of deficits. But it would be longer-term planning. I could see that. And in the communist China, the continuity there, I think every president thinks they're lining up things for the long haul and they want their legacy to be glorified and their programs to continue on. But it's just hard to do it, except in entitlements. We're good at that. That's true. And I do think this is an underreported issue is all of those countries that I mentioned are all fairly monoculture. They're all fairly the same sort of race of people that live in those nations. And all of those nations are kind of experiencing declining populations. And as you were saying, they're going to need immigrants to help fill in the countries and to, to provide the labor. But there's also, you know, a decent history of xenophobia in all of those nations. And they're not exactly the most welcoming to immigrants. And therefore, do you think they will accept them. Do you think they would they would be able to turn around their their outlook and their ideas in order to bring in what is going to need to be labor to help bring about these changes? How'd that go in Germany with their shrinking population and need for more people and professionals? How'd that go when all the Syrians came in there? Did the Germans accept them with open arms? No. Not so much. They seem to be a little bit disenchanted. And I hear a lot of anti-Turkish sentiment from Germans as well, despite the fact that they try to avoid their World War II history that they so uh, they so regret, or it seems they regret. Anyway, yeah, I, I don't know. Are these people really going to be welcomed there? Are they going to want them there? There's jobs in the United States, but there's and there are need to be filled. But it seems like there's a hardcore anti-immigrant movement that doesn't want people coming in to do those jobs. Yet Americans don't want to move to where the jobs are or do the jobs. I don't know how people expect this to go. I'm happy with immigration. Bring people in that want to be here, that want to work. And I think Russia should feel that way. But I don't know. It seems pretty cold up there because all these displaced people are mostly coming from warm countries. And you could definitely say that's the benefits of democracy is there is that push-pull in trying to decide about immigrants, right? And in our country, there's a much higher tolerance for immigrants and people that are non-native than there are in those other countries. In fact, if anything, this discussion now makes me wonder is, is the real question not necessarily Russia's opportunity? Let's, let's face it, it's probably there. Is the real question of what's going to happen to these 3 billion potential 
global climate change uh, refugees. Where do they go? What happens when they're living in nations that don't have enough water, can't support them with food? They will start pushing themselves up against the borders. How will the rest of the world work on that? Would you argue that's actually the real question here? Yeah, that is a real question. And I think they're likely to go to the nearest location that is most similar to their current place. Or they'll look long run. The uh, big book I just read about the undocumented immigrant in America, he came from the Philippines, the United States, because that was seen as the source of wealth. So wealth and prosperity, hope, and something like home, I think is where many of these people will go. But they're likely to come from countries that don't have a lot of wealth. They're not. They're likely to come from countries where it's very, very warm and look for similar countries that are near them. I mean, if you're fleeing Kiribati, where are you going? Guam? Hawaii? Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, literally, I don't know what you do with those island, islands way out. I mean, we see those very sad pictures of boats of people trying to leave Haiti or trying to get out of Libya and, and try to cross the Mediterranean. And a lot of times they capsize and, and people die. And, and that's horrible. I don't even know what to do with islands that you can't even get on a boat and try to get somewhere else. Absolutely. And those are the ones that are going to be in the, the first ones that are going to see true, true trauma with the greater raising oceans and so forth like that. I mean, the storms are going to hit places and established like it hit New York City. Like it's hit New Orleans and it's hit New Orleans. It's hit New Orleans. It's hit New Orleans. But I mean, I don't think people are going to leave there immediately unless they're forced to leave. And this idea of climate change kind of leads us to our third and last story. This comes from a book. And Don, I'll be honest, this is probably the most interesting book I've read in the last five years. Every page had a new idea and just something to chew on. And the book is by a guy named Kim Stanley Robinson. The book is called The Ministry for the Future. And in the book, Kim Stanley Robinson sort of imagines that the UN sort of decides to build this like small little office of people who are supposed to be thinking about future generations and about the climate change issue. And what is it that we can do to maybe actually make climate change go away or solve it? There's just tons of ideas that get sort of thrown around in this novel. And it's pretty much like any idea that was probably ever written down on a cocktail napkin by a scientist or a geoengineer. And they sort of get like weave together in this story. But one of the ideas is about the future and how do we put any sort of a value on the future? And so here's the best paragraph I read where they try to describe how humans think about the value of the future. And it just says, having debunked the tragedy of the commons, they now were trying to direct our attention to what they called the tragedy of the time horizon, meaning we can't imagine the suffering of the people of the future. So nothing much gets done on their behalf. What we do now creates damage that hits decades later. So we don't charge ourselves for it. And the standard approach has been that future generations will be richer and stronger than us, and they'll find solutions to their problems. But by the time they get there, these problems will have become too big to solve. That's the tragedy of the time horizon, that we don't look more than a few years ahead, or even in many cases, as with high-speed trading, a few microseconds ahead. And the tragedy of the time horizon is a true tragedy, because many of the worst climate impacts will be irreversible. Extinctions and ocean warming can't be fixed no matter how much money future people have. So economics as practice misses the fundamental aspect of reality. And Don, the book just kind of goes on to talk about the idea that 
We today don't ever think about the future. And they propose something called the carbon coin. And in general, basically what they say is all of the central banks of the world should come together and offer a new currency, the carbon coin. Basically, corporations or individuals that work towards either sequestering carbon or not re or reducing their carbon output should be able to earn this currency. The currency then is redeemable in the future. It's like a bond. You basically earn the currency and 20 years from now, 50 years from now, you can redeem it for money and there'll be an interest rate attached to it. So maybe it's 5%. So now all of a sudden, I'm giving you an incentive to work towards taking out carbon of our planet and it's financial. There's a reason for you to care about the future as the big point being, currently we don't really care that much about the future. what do you think about it? I think this is interesting. And so the detail here is that we're talking about a negative externality, and that is a negative effect that comes from other people's behaviors. And it affects the people that are not doing the behavior, but necessarily feel the effect of it. And at the time, it's not realized. And I think you make a good point on the long run. You know, my parents told me about, they brought me home from the hospital in a Volkswagen bug. I sat on the front, in my mom's lap on the front seat, no seatbelt. My dad was smoking in the passenger seat. And that was how things rolled in the 1976 when I was born. And now looking back, like, oh my gosh, we'd never do that. You definitely, you have to have a car seat. You can't even leave the hospital without your baby in a car seat. And you can't smoke around little kids. And what were you thinking? I think we're going to look back in times and say like, Hey, Zach, remember when you took your gigantic minivan and drove it all the way across the nation and burned all that carbon to take your giant vehicle for your family to see where Lewis and Clark went? Can you believe that, kids? Think of all the carbon we made. I mean, we're just not thinking about this now. And I really believe it's because we don't care. And I was thinking a lot about how, like, since I was in the sixth grade and started kind of following the news a little bit, I remember our politicians talking about how they didn't want to saddle the next generation with a bunch of debt, right? Well, what did they do? Our, our national debt's higher than ever. And people still continue to use this lame excuse of, I don't want my children to have all of this debt. And yet all we do is keep raising the debt. And now people use the similar sort of thing with climate change. I can't leave this planet to my children. I just can't believe that that's what we would do. But clearly we as humans like to say that, but we don't actually believe it. I think we've totally discounted our children and I was thinking about it, of that, I love my children. I'm sure you love your children. But how much do I love my grandchildren? Because they're not even here yet. And I was like, I guess tangentially I love them. But I don't know if I'm really thinking about their well-being right now because they're not here yet. And then what about your great-grandchildren, right? I can't even fathom what they're like. And to be honest, I have no love for them right now. Now, maybe if I'm still alive and they're here, I'll change my opinion. But I'm just thinking like my great ancestors, I don't think had any love for me because they probably couldn't even formulate a thought for me. And therefore, why would they really care if their trip across the country in a minivan burning fossil fuels really did anything to them, right? How do we get people to care about the future? And I just thought this carbon coin and the idea of money, that's what people care about making today worth something so they will care about the future and a new sort of bond with a rate of return. I think people would love this. Pension funds would love to get this carbon coin in order to start to like, you know, be able to have a better actuary table as to how they're going to pay out to their members and stuff like that. I think oil companies, they would love to have the financial incentive to maybe not drill oil. The whole point in this book is that like, what if we just offered 
Saudi Arabia a couple trillion in carbon coin with a rate of return, again, financed by all the central banks across the world to not drill the oil that's still in the ground for them. And all of a sudden, all of that oil that's below Saudi Arabia has a value to stay there. And to me, this was just a fundamentally changing way to think about humans and the future and also maybe how we could actually solve the climate crisis. Well, two things. One, if you're going to pay Saudi Arabia to keep the oil in the ground and you're going to keep pay oil companies to keep the oil in the ground, then you're going to empty out these central banks pretty quick because the value of those resources are tremendous. It's in the hundreds of trillions of dollars. I'm not sure we have that much money in our central banks. However, unlike your faith in this coin as a hope, my faith is in technology. Electric cars are going to be cheaper than gas cars in 2024. What's more, they'll be faster and cooler and less cheaper to run. And that will make the market switch. And markets are solution. Even though what you're proposing is a market for externality rights, it is not the same as for Joe pickup truck driver who doesn't pull a trailer, but just likes being up high. I think an electric truck makes him more excited than anything else, especially if that truck's really cool and fast and comes out in three years. Right. Well, we know one thing about central banks is that they make up their money. They just print their own currency, right? We know that right now with the dollar, for instance, the U.S. Fed can just keep making dollars all of it all at once. And therefore, the idea would be you need to get all the banks to just decide, yeah, we're going to make a new currency. And then you'd have to have them be able to find a way to distribute it to people doing good. And it would be everything from corporations to just how about a lowly tenant farmer in India who's going to plant the right sorts of crops that, again, suck in carbon and keep it in the ground? I, I think the technological solution you talk about is good, but part of it is we need to get carbon out of the air as well as just stop putting as much in there. And so I think probably what you need is a combination of both carrots and sticks, don't you think? Yeah, carrots and sticks, and that would work. However, okay, you're proposing a whole new currency. People have heard of Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin's yes. a big deal? Yes. Bitcoin's $600 billion. That's the total value of all the Bitcoin. We're going to have to go bigger than that. Yes, like by a hundredfold. So sure. you're talking about creating a hundred times bigger than Bitcoin thing that is funded by central banks. I don't know. I'm not sure people have the faith in it as in terms of the central bank problem. I mean, aren't these central banks ultimately supported by elected officials? Won't elected officials have to rationalize the emptying of the, the central bank to pay off Saudi Arabia? I mean, it seems a little bit unlikely in my world. Definitely is. And at the same time, I would also argue that central banks are some of the most autonomous organizations on the earth, right? The Fed just operates independently of the U.S. government. Yes, the president can appoint the Fed chair every four years, but the Fed just decides whether or not it wants interest rates. The Fed just decides whether or not it's going to you know, print up more bonds or not. Therefore, there's a lot of autonomy. You could argue that you maybe aren't going to get stuck down in the sort of politics that we see over all sorts of legislation. It seems like there's hope there. Again, the idea would be, look at how quickly Bitcoin has sort of caught on. Now, you and I could sit and argue whether or not Bitcoin is going to be here 10 years from now. But think about how many people have adopted it as some sort of a currency and some sort of thing that holds value. Why couldn't you have a carbon coin that, again, incentivizes people to take carbon out or to sequester it, offer them a decent rate of return, and then make it exchangeable for any currency in the world? It, to me, it seems like a really good idea to try knowing that you and I discount the future so much. 
how else can we get people to actually think about global warming, which is a it's a it's a multi-decade, if not century-long issue, right? Every day we just keep kicking it off. How can we start to change more of our behaviors today to actually impact the future? Well, I want to take issue with your description of Bitcoin, where you said it is a currency or a thing of value. It is a thing of value. I don't think it's a currency. But in terms of making people care about the long run, I think you have to reach the culmination of your idea is that in the short run, it values it's valuable to people to use the carbon coin. And if we can get to that point where it's a short run value, then people change their behavior. But I don't think you can get people to think long run because most people, even in America, are thinking about this month or next month. They're not, they don't have money saved for that long. If they have to replace a furnace, it's a major issue. I don't think they're thinking about carbon unless you can make it short-term profitable. But like your sons, maybe they all of a sudden start digging up your backyard and they start planting the right sorts of crops that will absorb carbon and put it back into the ground. And literally they could have a local inspector show up and say, all right, gentlemen, it looks like you guys have sequestered this much carbon. Here are your carbon coins. The current exchange rate is this many carbon coins for US dollars. And now all of a sudden, you've got a system that can empower lots of people from small children to large corporations that could do large scale projects to nations that are sitting on tons of fossil fuels. It just seems like the mechanisms are there. I agree with you that Getting humans all on the same page to actually adopt something like that maybe seems impossible, but the mechanism seems there. Am I crazy? No, you're not crazy. And that could work. And that does work. I remember reading about a Scandinavian country that paid off an African country just to not harvest these trees because that is a way for them to correct their externality and save the carbon without changing their own behavior. So that could work. And I see it. It's just the gigantic funding. And I get your point that central banks control all the money and can make it at their will. But I just, it has to be so big to be that much bigger than Bitcoin, to be that much bigger than anything else. Well, this sort of ties back into the idea of, do you think it would be easier if you had a bunch of autocrats that ran the major financial banks and countries of the world because they could more easily get on board than probably democracies, which we know are just a messier, longer term process to make things work. As long as you believe autocrats are uh, focused on not only not just their self-preservation, but the long run greater good for everybody, which doesn't seem to be the track record for most autocrats. That's very true. You know, in this book, what I think is interesting is that the main characters are just bureaucrats. They're people that work in an office, they take ideas, and then pretty much they just go to meetings all the time and try to argue for their ideas. They try to use data, but it's not like goodwill hunting goes into these meetings and, you know, just blows people away this mind or Rambo shows up with a gun. It just goes to show that like, these are human problems that can be worked through if people are just willing to kind of like open up their minds a little bit and be bold, I guess. Yeah, I do like the idea of somebody, and that maybe is the real heroes of our government and our society, is the people that are making these decisions at some middle level. Somebody at uh, GM that's arguing that says in 2035, we should start making stop making combustion engines and makes that argument to the upper management that then decides on it. Perhaps this is the unsung hero of our society. No, I, I guess you're right. It's the, it's the average person that ultimately will make this either work or not work. And I just thought this carbon coin was fascinating. I can't recommend the book enough. It just brings up so many interesting ideas. And one of the things that they brought up that I've never thought about, and it was kind of terrifying, is 
the idea that like, at some point, do you think people could become so distraught over global warming that they become radicalized? And in this book, they talk about how just there's these groups of people around the world that have decided to start assassinating like CEOs of fossil fuel companies or people literally start flying swarms of drones into the engines of airplanes that are flying over the ocean just to start crashing them and making people afraid to fly. And it almost becomes like a form of like environmental terrorism that happens. And at first you're like, this is stupid. But then you're like, well, we've seen radical groups rise up for all sorts of strange reasons in our country and across the world. Why couldn't people become radicalized over the environment? Well, we've learned nothing else in the last few months is that people can come radicalized pretty quickly and that they can take uh, aggressive and dangerous actions based upon non-truths. And perhaps this could happen. I could see that if your homeland's threatened and you're going underwater and Florida's all gone, maybe you're really ready to take some crazy aggressive actions. Right. So anyways, I, I just it's there. I could go on and on about this book, but those are our three ideas. And uh, I guess, Don, I'd, I'd love for you to rank them. If we had to choose one as a nation to, to really start thinking about or working towards, uh, how would you pick them? Oh, I got to go. The CRISPR is my favorite. I think that's really, that's, that's doable. Now we could pull the trigger and start that. And my second would be the, uh, I think I got to go with carbon coin. You've convinced me a little bit that this is an interesting idea because I have so little faith in Russia as number three. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I would pick carbon coin first. I want to be bold. I do think this climate change thing is going to impact everybody on this planet in ways that we still haven't even modeled out or can imagine yet. Although again, maybe it's just my great grandchildren who really get the butt end of it. And as we've discussed, I can't decide if I love them yet or not. <laughs> and therefore I'm going carbon coin too. I would love to see something like this. I love the idea of incentives too, though. I think people respond to incentives and I think that there's there's merit and value there. I'll probably go CRISPR next. I do think you're right. That's the most doable. We're already doing it. I can't decide if I want to release it or not, but I definitely would be curious to see like what happens to these cane toads. And uh, once again, I'm sorry, cane toads, for being made fun of so much in that <laughs> article. And then you're right, Russia, I, I do think it's out there. And I, to be honest, you know me, though. I'm, I'm a little more of a big stick guy foreign policy-wise than you are. And I really do hope that America has got think tanks thinking about the rest of the world and how this all plays out with geopolitical implications. I've always thought that it's easier to be the guy with all the power making the decisions than the guy who's trying to come up and have the power. And therefore, America, we still have some moral authority and definitely military power across this world. I hope we are thinking about how we are using it. Hope so. Hope there's some girls involved as well. Definitely. Well, Don, it's been a pleasure talking to you this week, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Absolutely. Good times. Take care.